Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion on some pushback, some objections to um, our approach to domestic abuse work. But before we do that, I wanted to remind you of PeaceWorks University. You know, I come here every week uh, reminding you that if you enjoy the PeaceWorks podcast, if you're benefiting from the content you're hearing on the podcast week after week, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and it is chock full of resources that I know will be helpful to you Uh, If you're attempting to help others uh, who are dealing with the horrors of domestic abuse from a gospel-centered perspective, you can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. Okay, so today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion at some pushback. We've been receiving some questions, and um, uh, often they're formulated in the uh, in words like I've heard or my pastor or my mentor or our ministry leader is concerned at our approach to domestic abuse care and counseling. These are generally in the context of counseling. And last week, of course, we dealt with the objection of belief that why do you say to believe the victim? Uh, and today I want to talk a little bit about this, this idea of isn't abuse subjective? And the the pushback that we're often getting, uh, the questions that we're often receiving revolve around this idea of abuse is too subjective without a proper definition, without proper limits and boundaries, without explicit, you know, just um, firm lines in the sand, then anything can be abuse. And for many of you, you, you know that in the past I have talked about this idea of um, anything can be abusive. And one of the statements that I'll use quite frequently is if everything is abuse, then nothing is abuse. So there has to be a standard. There has to be a framework that we're using to determine um, the problems that we are dealing with. However, I think when that standard, when that framework is rigid or static, when it is a list, a bullet point that applies to all cases and all time, then we're running a great deal of risk and danger because uh, abuse is experiential as much as it is practical. There, there are practices of abuse, but there's also the experience of the abused and victims and survivors in particular of various forms of abuse will tell you that their experiences may involve both gross violations of personal uh, and sexual space, physical contact. Um, It may also include aspects of ridicule or demeaning. But within that process, it may include aspects of life that would seem eccentric, odd, habitual, or even normal. And so abuse is not or should not merely be defined by its practice, but also by its experience. So I guess when the pushback comes to Chris, are you saying that abuse is subjective, that we can't possibly know other than what the victim says? You're saying that the victim 
sense is that they're abused, then they're abused. I would respond to that and say, um, not necessarily to the idea of if you feel abused, you are abused. I will say to the notion that abuse is subjective, that sure, somewhat, yes. Because, as we've said many times, if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse. Abuse is practiced and experienced differently within different couples. Now, will there be commonalities? Sure. I think if you do this work long enough, you will see commonalities in nearly every case that you work where individuals have very similar stories, very similar experiences, where perpetrators commit very similar acts. And I I will tell you, in all the years of working in perpetrator groups, um, you see a lot of commonality. But you also see a lot of distinctions based upon the nature of the relationship, the history, the family of origin, the, the nature of the relationship, the the means of control and the ways in which individuals can establish power and control. Uh, for instance, I, I recall one group in particular where um, one man in the group was exceedingly violent, physically violent. Um, another man in the group was sexually violent, uh, very gross violations. And yet uh, another man in the group was highly manipulative and focused his attacks, although he had been violent, he focused his uh, abuse around things that she treasured, gifts from her grandmother. And I would venture a guess, and, and I do not wish to speak on behalf of victims, but it's just a guess, based upon that particular group's dynamic and the discussions that we had of the three men that I described, the physically violent, the sexually violent, And the manipulative, the individual using the gifts from the grandmother, who who was now deceased, against their partner, it was the third victim that, my guess, had the most lasting and devastating results based upon what I was hearing from the men. That those acts of breaking, hiding, stealing, removing gifts associated with ones uh, with her grandmother was incredibly violating. Now, of course, that ties into other things that he was doing. That was not the only acts he was committing, but it, it was significant. And so each victim in those stories were receiving different forms of abuse, but uh, they would all describe it differently and experience it differently. And so in that regard, yes, uh, abuse is subjective in that it is something that's being experienced. Intimate partner violence, even more so. If you're in a culturally abusive situation, if you're um, a group of people, there's at least an aspect of solidarity. Uh, if you're a marginalized group, if you're um, a citizen of an abusive regime, as it were, there's a, there's a solidarity in community. When you're the victim of an intimate partner, there is less solidarity and more confusion. And there is going to be subjective aspects to abuse. And so that is true. But we still operate by standards. We still operate 
by framework. So, so let me talk just a little bit about that. The first of which is, I think all of us seem to be in agreement on this. And this is like one of the things that I think, at least we give lip service to. Maybe I should back up and say that. At least we say this publicly, we write this well, is we have criminal standards that we are generally aware of. Okay, so we know that there are frameworks that help us process abuse within the code. So we would mostly be on board with the idea that uh, domestic battery, domestic assault, uh, in some states, strangulation, misdemeanor strangulation, in some states, unlawful restraint, and in some states, stalking and harassing, many of us would say, sure, there's a legal code. We can clearly see when the line is crossed. So there is a standard that many of us are operating within that may be coinciding with the criminal code. A second standard or framework is what we would call a pattern of sinful behavior. Because not everything that is sinful is illegal. And not everything that's abusive is illegal. And that may be part of the rub. I think for some of us, it'd be nice if we just had a law book and we could say, aha, according to the law, you are abusive. I can report you to police and I can go about my business. But the vast majority of abuse victims' experiences and perpetrators' practice are outside of the legal code. They're still morally wrong. They're still utterly sinful but they exist outside of the code. And culturally, societally, I think we're okay with that. I, I, I think that would be very hard to uh, charge and convict in a court of law uh, some of those non-criminal aspects of emotional abuse. Um, although there are some aspects of coercive control I think we could do a better job of. I do understand why it's not in the code, but that doesn't mean that it's um, amoral or moral, morally insignificant or less than sinful. Um, in fact, it can be utterly sinful and perfectly legal. That's why we talk about patterns of sinful behavior. Uh, when we talk about abuse, patterns are a major part of this. That's another reason why uh, even secular tools like the Duluth Power and Control Wheel are beneficial observational tools because it allows us to see the, these experiences of 200 victims and how common they are um, and how that stood the test of time, that these seven or eight aspects of power and control are often present in abusive relationships. And so seeing dominance, coercion, threat, manipulation, isolation, uh, intimidation, using the money, using the children, ridicule, demeaning, uh, physical and sexual violence together allows us to begin to paint a broader picture, or as my friend Kirsten says, you know, take the the one star back up and see the whole constellation. Right, we we see the Big Dipper because we can see all of the stars, and much is true in the case of abuse. As we begin to learn and grow. Uh, it becomes much less subjective, much less personal, and more communal. Uh, going back to our last discussion, our, our discussion last week, we begin to carry burdens and co-suffer and 
begin to see the experiences over time as we develop a history that begins to build this framework of credibility. So as the the counselor or the people helper, we're not just stuck on one incident. We're not just responding to a disclosure. We're responding to categories and patterns. Uh, we see that biblically in categories of oppression. That's one of the reasons why I, I like to use those uh, four foundational elements of abuse, um, connecting them to biblical narratives. And I know uh, narrative, biblical narratives are not um, all-inclusive teaching points, but taking those four aspects that are common in abusive relationships, the idea of an abuse of power, um, objectification of the victim, forced submission or subjugation and impunity for the abuser, you can place them into situations of power, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar or King David or King Saul, and you can begin to see how those play out in that power dynamic of oppression versus oppressed. And I think that's really key in developing categories of oppression, categories of abuse. And so is abuse subjective? Well, in many ways it is, but it's also categorical. It's also developed through patterns. It's also observable. And so once you start talking about things that are observable and measurable, then you're, start, then you're talking about frameworks and objective truth, that we're not just now dealing with the feelings and perceptions of a victim who's disclosing, but now we're dealing with truth. We're dealing with history. We're dealing with incidents that over time begin to build a much broader pattern. So as we step into like confrontational ministry, so if we're working with an abuser, for instance, I'm not simply or not simply asking individuals to confront them as an abuser. It really is not helpful to just confront them as a label. We're confronting a pattern of behavior. We're pulling the rope and trying to uncover a series of motivations. We're continuing to pull and to dialogue to discover underlying beliefs and idols. We're unpacking a heart of violence so that we can put off, right, off what was once our our mo and we can begin to put on the mind of christ uh, with his, his new patterns of behavior and now observable measurable um life change and transformation and so i think that's essential to the discussion that we are moving from subjective to objective now does that mean that we see it physically with our eyes, that we now have evidence from our perspective? No, we're not in the room. Um, we're not there. We're not in the home. But we have data and information that is clearly identifying the problems that are being experienced. And that is building that framework, those categories, that will help us confront and hopefully provide a means of transformation. And certainly throughout this whole process, we're called to speak the truth, to continue to address 
uh, the things that we're seeing, the responses that are engaged, the oppor- the opportunities to move forward, to evaluate the change, and certainly speaking truth to the need for confrontation. I think if we're dealing with a case, let's just say we're, we're dealing with the disclosure, we've listened well, we've gathered data, we have an incident uh, that involves berating. Upon further discussion and sessions, we've uncovered an incident that involved a threat. We've documented the threat along with the words, the berating words that were mentioned previously. And in future discussions, we uncover an act of restraint. Again, we uncover a fear of finances related to his overwhelming control of the finances. And now the truth is becoming more and more clear. Does he see it? Perhaps not. Did she see it fully? Perhaps not. Do you see it in its entirety? More than likely not. But you're beginning to see the pattern that is revealing not only the danger, but justifying the fear and the pain that you've been walking through with your counselee. And then it's imperative that we speak truth, that we reveal truth, that we work with our client or counselee to determine a proper place, time, and manner in which we're going to begin to disclose truth to those who need to hear. In order to do that, we're going to create safety plans and uh, begin to work through safety measures together. My fear is we're not getting that far in the process. My fear is that we're more prone to dismiss because we don't allow our counselees enough time. We don't give them enough room to express beyond what they're feeling, to actually dialogue and craft and help us understand what they're experiencing. And when we dismiss someone because they're stuck in their feels. They can only articulate themselves in feelings. If we dismiss them, I think we do them a disservice. Instead, what if we were to coach them? What if we were to counsel them? What if we were to sit patiently with them and help them process their valid, real feelings into words of experience and and change, and practical, um, objective frameworks. So we begin to see what is true, or maybe what is more true than when we started the dialogue. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's helpful. We certainly uh, understand that disclosures and initial cases of abuse contain a lot of subjectivity, contain a lot of experience, um, But my hope is that we won't dismiss that, but we'll learn to dialogue with those experiences. We'll learn to set within that suffering and begin to learn how to craft and build those objective measures based on what we're hearing, based on the pictures that are being painted. And we'll begin to see the patterns as they emerge um, in working with cases of domestic abuse. Well, we're going to continue to talk about objections, pushback, 
in our next episode. I hope you will join us there. If you are enjoying the PeaceWorks podcast, would you rate, review, or subscribe, depending upon the platform that you're listening on? That'd be greatly appreciated. Be sure to check out uh, our other resources at chrismoles.org. And until next time, God bless.